everybody, I'm Adam Hergenrother. This is Business Meets Spirit Chatter. We believe in personal growth through business success. Today, I am joined by Mark Redmond, a very, very special guest and a dear friend of mine. Mark is the Executive Director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. He has served in that role since 2003. He has worked with homeless and at-risk youth since 1981, 40 years he's going on that. In New York City, Westchester, New York, Stanford, Connecticut. Before coming to Spectrum, Mark was the Associate Executive Director of the Dalmas Foundation, helped start the city's first charter school for low-income middle school children, which, by the way, he did in like six weeks. If you read his book, it's pretty fascinating. He actually did a charter school in six weeks, which most people said takes at least six months to do, so you're going to learn about learn about that in his book. He has a bachelor's degree in finance from Villanova, uh, Nova University and a master's in public administration from the New York University. In addition to working at Spectrum, Mark is a writer for the Huffington Post and an author of The Goodness Within, reaching out to troubled teens with love and compassion. He's had articles published in Forbes, The New York Times, Stanford Advocate, and Burlington Free Press. In, 2020, in June of 2021, Mark published a new book, a memoir titled called. In our conversation, you're going to hear from a very authentic individual who I think is a great living example of using business as a conduit for growth and using uh, business as a conduit for being extremely focused on results, but by letting go of the personal satisfaction that comes from being focused on, on results. So I know you're going to enjoy our conversation with Mark today. Enjoy. So Mark, thanks so much for being on the show today. We're really excited to have you. I wanted to start off because I've known you personally and had you, um, you know, had the opportunity to hear your story than listening to your book. I actually learned quite a bit and um, called uh, about you, um, but I want, so I want to dive into that. It would be great for our listeners to hear a little bit about, let me just back up for a second. I think that your book is a wonderful leadership story about perseverance, grit, the challenges that you've gone through. Um, in the nonprofit world, uh, you know, and also, and I think this is a great um, reflection of people's lives of just how difficult, whatever path you go through, there's always going to be challenges. So I would love for you to kind of share the story when you were interviewing to actually take the position for um, the, uh, for Spectrum in Vermont, they asked you, they said, you know, what is the difference between leadership and being a manager? And you shared the story towards the end about being a leader um, and you shared that story about when your um, the uh, uh, one of your colleagues was shot at the store, um, and you said that was the difference between you know being a leader and a manager. I'd love for you to share that story. Sure. So um, thanks for having me on, Adam. And uh, yeah, it was in 2003, and I came up uh, to interview for the Spectrum job. They put me through a series of interviews, and it was finally the last final interview. I'd met with all the staff, <laughs> with board members only the full board. And one of the board members asked, what's the difference between being, you know, a leader and, and just a supervisor? And I said, you know, I had this job where for five years I ran a residential treatment center for young people who were struggling. And uh, I really struggled to connect with the staff there. It might've been racial. I was a white man and I replaced a African American man. Most of the staff were African American or Hispanic. Most of the kids were African American or Hispanic. I don't know, but really in my last year, we had a terrible incident. I watched one of my staff members, a young African American man drive off our parking lot. I remember seeing him go in his car and six hours later, I got a call from the police. We need you to go to the morgue because somebody has been shot and killed and we think you know who it is. We can't find the family. 
So I got to the morgue and, you know, I've seen dead bodies, but usually at a wake or a funeral, I've never seen a dead body where the eyes are open and there's the look of terror on somebody's face. So this poor man, Charles Campbell, was shot and killed by a white off-duty police officer over a dispute about a parking spot. It was tragic, you know? Yeah. So, you know, wow, I had to deal with that. We had to tell the kids, we had to tell the staff. There was, you know, the media was there. It was really a struggle. And there were a series of rallies that I started to go to. You know, I felt very strongly this was a tragedy and an injustice. And funny, my boss was Hispanic. And at a certain point, he said to me, I see you going to all these, but you don't need to keep going to them. And I said, no, I feel like I do. I feel like I do need to keep going to these. You know, this was really an injustice and I need to keep. And many times, Adam, I was the only Caucasian person there, you know. Yeah. At one time, one of our I was tight with a woman who worked for us, African-American woman, and she turned me and she said, you know, the staff really love you now. That's and awesome. I said, yeah, why? Why? Because I said, you know, I've had trouble getting along with the staff for the last five years. And she said, they see what you're doing and they know that you're with us now, you know. And that was such, so I told that story to the Spectrum board. I said, I, had, I was always a good administrator. I was organized. I knew strategic planning. I knew budgeting. I knew all that. But that was the time I learned what the difference is between being a good administrator and being a leader. And being a leader means being there with your people, especially in the difficult times, in the really tough times. So they ended up hiring me at Spectrum. So <laughs> I don't know if it was that one story. But I've often thought of that, Adam. You know that? That really, I remember early when I was at St. Christopher's, you know, when I interviewed for the job, they said to me, we have all these problems here. Kids are breaking into homes and towns and we have riots. And I was like, riots? Well, I was there about six weeks when at 11 at night, a riot began on our campus. And man, oh man, talk about scary. And I remember being out there, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and one of the staff turned to me and said, what are you doing out here? Your predecessor just used to, like, wave to us from the window, you know? And I remember the next day I saw my boss, and I said, oh, my God, this was terrible. We had this riot, and this happened on my watch. And he said, no, you established yourself last night. You didn't hide in your house and let the staff deal with, you know, all of the difficulty. You were out there. So that's another example, yeah. I think, Adam, where a leader is someone who's right out there in the thick, not not hiding away from the controversy or the difficulties. You know, I think one of the most important things a leader can do running any organization right now um, and what they're being called to do, which is, you know, there's no point in your book. Right. But uh, what they're being called to do is is to take a stand on a lot of these um, the, the issues that are that are, that are um, plaguing the U.S. right now, right? Racial injustice, um, you know, it, our employees are going to us and saying, where do you stand on this? Like, how, what about the, even just, you know, the voting rights, right? Everybody, and if you're a leader, not willing to take a stand on some of these things, knowing that not everyone's going to agree with your decision, right? So it's, it's part of, that's why I loved about your book. And it was very timely right now, where it's just, there's going to be a lot of big decisions leaders of organizations are going to have to make. And if they're unwilling to make those, then they kind of, they you should probably turn over that leadership role to somebody else who's willing to make those decisions, stick it out there. You know, I, you know, I wanted to uh, go back a little bit too, because you entered the nonprofit world, um, not with a psychology degree, not necessarily thinking that that's, that's necessarily the avenue, correct me if I'm wrong, but not really the avenue that you weren't sure you're going to go down. You, you had a, a business degree 
and you've kind of applied different concepts to the nonprofit world. So maybe back us up a little bit for our listeners of saying, hey, how did you get into this uh, and kind of work your way to where you are today in a, in a condensed format? So I was a business major in college. How to be a business major? Well, I got into Villanova and I had to, my parents had to send the first check and there was a form you had to check one of four boxes. Pick a major, nursing, arts and sciences, business or engineering. So I turned to my dad and said, which box should I check? He goes, well, what do you want to do with your life? I'm like, I'm 17. I don't have a clue. Yeah. So he said, well, he was a businessman. He goes, well, put down business. That's what I did. And that's what I studied. And I actually did quite well. I was president of the finance society and then the business honor fraternity. And, you know, I finished the other top of my class and got this really uh, great job on Madison Avenue as part of a management training program. But I didn't really like it. I was quite bored by it. And, and I started volunteering at this shelter in Times Square for homeless teenagers called Covenant House. And I just remember going back to a meeting with the senior vice president. And I forget what the numbers were, but he gave us this talk and said, you know, our assets are at 300 billion. And by the end of the decade, we need to get to 500 billion. And that's what you all need to focus on. That's the goal. You all need to work to that goal. And I remember thinking, that's not my goal. It's just not. I'm yeah. not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's immoral. I'm not saying it's just not what I want to dedicate my life to. So I quit and <laughs> I moved into the shelter for homeless teenagers across from a crack house in a strip club. And uh, now it's interesting because I've said to my wife many times, you know, I really studied the wrong thing. You know, I and she said, no, no, no. The, the things that you learned in business school have really stood you in good stead because you've applied those principles yes. to the nonprofit world. And that is what is one of the things that's made you so successful because mm -hmm. most people study psychology or social work and they never learn those things, Adam. And then they get, but they're a good counselor. Oh, now we're going to make you a director. And they're never taught those leadership and business skills. So they're at a disadvantage. So in a way it all worked out the way it was supposed to work out. How, how did you, yeah, I love, I love that story. What, what this, how did your decision-making go when you were going to leave, you know, this, this awesome job that you had in terms of, you know, monetary benefits to going and obviously going to um, the nonprofit world, which probably doesn't have the same benefits no. as, you know, being, being in the business world, but you really followed your calling, right? Um, and, you know, you really have this strong sense that you were here on earth to support this. And I know in your book, you talk about, in a, in, and you don't, maybe you can do it in different references. Yeah. You talk about the difference between, I think you did this with your current wife where you had this, this intuition, this visceral contact with a, it wasn't a thought that came from like your mind. It was more of a, 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 a lower behind thought that kind of came in there. You just knew it was true that you had to follow this, that there was going to be somebody in your life coming in there. Did you have that same type of experience, more of that spiritual experience of like, Hey, this is not what I'm here for. It's not my Dharma. This is not what I'm, I'm supposed to be. And you followed that which very few people I think uh, have the, 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 the courage to do. And so I just love, I love that part of that story. That's a good question. For me, it was more of like a growing awareness, you know, okay. yep. this growing insight that this was the path that I was supposed to be following. And I think I wrote about that story. Once in college, I had that. I went to church on a Sunday evening and there was a man who had walked from Guatemala all the way to Philadelphia to raise money wow. for his work in Guatemala. And I remember sitting there so transfixed, you know, by what he said. And everybody else kind of just got up out of church and went to the library to study. Now, why did I 
was so tra- you know what I mean? Why was I, but right there, you look like the seeds were planted even there, you know, mm-hmm. and it would take me many years in various you know, paths to get to where I was. But I remember by the time I left my job at Madison Avenue, I didn't have a shadow of a doubt. It was one of those things I was so certain this is what I should be doing, you know? So it isn't, there are other times, like you're right, when I met my wife, when I had this, it was more, I didn't hear a voice, but I had like this strong sense of like, do you ever have that in your life? This thought pops into your brain. You're like, where did that come from? Yeah, it's like a deeper, it's more of like in the whole, it's like a, I always kind of refer to that as like a, it's like a whole conscious thought. It's not just a, a generated, you know, on the left side of your brain thought, it's more of like your whole body starts to experience that thought. Uh, and that kind of that and it's more of like a knowing, right? It's like, how do you yes. describe what an orange tastes like? It's just it's hard to describe that even with the best words, but there's a knowing and you followed that knowing. And I think that's what takes the real courage, whether that's in business, whether that's in nonprofit, whether that's in, you know, teaching, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's, we all have that, that, that essence within us that, that we can follow that knowing. And that's that authenticity that people um, try to follow. And I think you're a great example of following your authenticity in that angle. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I like the orange example. Yeah. <laughs> How do you describe what an orange tastes like? Well, it tastes like an orange. <laughs> exactly. There's just a knowing. And until you actually taste it, and fall right. through with it, you, you won't know. Even. Yeah, you can't say, well, it's got this citrusy thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but you're right, that happens in life, you know, where you have this, it's this, it's like the deepest part of you, the deepest essence of you, and, and, it, and it rises up. And for me, I talk, write in my book a lot about my dreams. You know, I was yeah. taught to pay attention to my, not just dream, what do you dream feel like, but when you sleep, what you dream, you're going to get, you can get some real insights there. Yeah, talk to us about that. Well, it was funny. I, I write in the book, I got divorced uh-huh. and went through a very deep depression where, you know, I Which lost I didn't weight. Realize and... You had actually gotten that depressed. I don't think I've, you've, all the times that you and I've chatted, I've never heard that part about that. So it was really fascinating. So most people yeah. are amazed because they're like you, because, you yeah. know, I'm your energy yes. and positivity. And, but yeah. I went through a very deep depression where I still remember I went from 186 pounds to 147 pounds. I had trouble, terrible trouble sleeping. I uh, could barely function. So I did, uh, I got professional help. It's funny, that chapter has resonated, especially with a lot of men. And yeah. I got professional help. And I remember seeing this therapist at one point in desperation saying, I've, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I'm coming here. I've gone to medication. What else? So we'll see if you can, see if you can remember your dreams. See if you can remember your dreams and write them down and, and come back here. So I kept a little tape recorder by my bedstand. And I would somehow wake myself up when I had a dream and I would record the dream and then write it down the next day. And to this day, Adam, if I have an important, that was 27 years ago. To this day, I ha- if I have an important decision to make, I will go to bed and ask my mind, like, help me with a dream here. And I actually turned down a job about three years ago. About three years ago, I was offered a very nice job. I said to my wife, I think I'm going to take this job and I'm going to leave Spectrum. I've been here for 15 years. It's been great, but... And she said to me, that's fine. I'll support whatever you want to do. But I know, A, we won't see you much. And B, you're going to be mostly putting out fires. So I went to bed at night thinking, in the morning, I call my board of directors and tell them. And I had this dream, Adam, that uh, I was in a room and this toaster caught fire. And I kept putting the toaster out and it kept catching fire over and over again. I literally woke up and called my wife and said, I'm not taking that job. And she was like, I thought for sure you were going to. I said, no, I said, what you said about putting out fires, I think, and I, I just am not interested in doing that. I only have a certain number of years on this planet. 
I don't want to be putting out fires. I'd rather be creating new things at Spectrum that will, which has happened. I'm so grateful I didn't take that job, Adam, because so many wonderful things have happened at Spectrum in the last few years. Have you always had dreams and followed those or did that come more? Is there a practice that you do? I know that you you went to a monastery at one point in your life, a silent retreat, I believe, for 10 days. That, do you have like a prescriptive practice that you do to kind of be more in tune with that side? Because I'm sure there's some people that say, hey, I, love, I would love to have a dream that kind of helps guide me. And, it's, and I think part of it too is when, when listening to your book and listening to you now, it's not necessarily a dream that gives you specific step-by-step instructions. Like it's an email to you. It's just more of that. It's a way of, it's a signal to you of more of like a knowing that you have to follow that almost like having the courage to follow whatever that, um, that guidance or that those signposts are dropping for you. Right. So do I have it? Well, I do go on retreat. I try and go. In fact, I was at a monastery the night I had that dream about the toaster. I went wow. away to the Greenmont Monastery because remember, I told the nuns yeah. the night before I said, oh, I'm going to leave this job. The next day I said, oh, I had this dream and they were, they still tease me. Wow. Have another dream. <laughs> so, um, I think, you know, if I do have an important decision to make about work or life or whatever, I, I will say to myself, you're going to sleep, you know, OK, mind, you know, help me out here. And many times it will. It's shocking how often. And then when I wake up in the morning, I try to think, what did I dream? Did I have a dream? Most of the time I can't remember. But if I have an important decision, I mean, even coming to, coming to Spectrum, Adam, my biggest fear was this. An executive director, a key part of your job is making connections with philanthropists, the business community, legislators. I didn't know anybody. I was working, living in Yonkers. I just knew the people on the board of directors. So I was really hesitant and I'll never forget, I had this dream where I was driving north, I was in a business suit to New England somewhere and it's at night and I get to this big hall and the mayor of Stamford, Connecticut is in there to introduce me. I knew him because I was working in Connecticut and it's this big room with all these folks and he says, this man is coming up here to take a very difficult job. He's gonna need help. Who in this room is willing to help Mark Redmond? And one by one, all those hands shoot up in the air. I'll help him, I'll help him, I'll help him. So I literally woke up and turned to my wife and said, I know this is a huge risk. You're gonna have to quit your job. I'm gonna have to quit my job. We have a two month old child. There's so many risks with this, but based on our dream, I think we should do it. And as I tell people, I'll sometimes meet donors and say, hey, you know, like Rich Karen, I've said, Rich, you were in that dream. I didn't know you then, but you were one of, <laughs> you were one of the people who has reached out to help me. That's awesome. So what does Spectrum do? We work with homeless and at-risk teenagers as young as 11 or 12, all the way up to 22, 23. So what's at risk? Dropped out of high school in the juvenile justice system because they committed a crime. Kids involved in human trafficking, addicted to drugs and alcohol. Uh, uh, Kids who suffer from emotional distress or psychiatric distress. Uh, kids exiting the foster care, kids exiting the children's mental health system, and inevitably, Adam, some combination. So it could be a runaway who's also addicted to drugs. It could be a kid involved in human trafficking who's also in the juvenile justice system. Sometimes this young person who's involved in all of those things. Very, very complicated cases. And we help them basic needs. In the winter, we have a 10-bed warming shelter. Just get out of the cold. Don't freeze to death during the winter. But then we have a regular shelter, eight beds on Pearl Street. Then we have apartments. So we have like this, I like, it's a conveyor belt. You literally start, get out of the cold, don't freeze. 
Now you're in what we call the landing. We're going to ask you to look for a job. We're going to ask you to go to school. And now if you do well there, you move into the apartments. Now we're going to ask you to pay rent, start a bank account, learn how to drive a car. You know, I have people on our board of directors now who eight, 10 years ago, they were the homeless kid living in the warming shelter. And they moved through that conveyor belt. At the same time, we have our own job developers helping those kids find jobs. We have our own mental health and addiction counselors on staff helping them with those. We started a car detailing business. That's what I'm going right after this interview to help kids because our kids are not very good. They're pretty good at finding jobs. They're terrible at staying in jobs. Mm -hmm. So when we did strategic planning, I said, what? what's, I met with the staff. Why are so few kids succeeding at work? They're like, they didn't grow up in families where they were taught how to show up on time, how to speak to a boss, how to work as part of a team, how to speak to a customer. They never learned those things. And um, they said, most owners of a business, they're running their construction company or their fast food place. They're not trained how to work with this population. So that's when we said, well, we are. So what if we start a business of our own and we're the employer and we have staff in there who are trained how to work with this? So we have gone from 41% of our kids making it to 90 days in a job at a construction company or fast food to 86% over at our car detailing business. In fact, I'm meeting with a young woman today. She started as a kid with us, did so well. We hired her as an employee. Now she just got into a mechanics training program. I think it's at Toyota. So she's leaving next week to go. That is exactly what we want to see, Adam. You know, not every kid's going to go into the automotive industry, but they are going to learn how to work how to show up on time, how to speak to a boss, how to speak to, and that's what's important. So for people who do not know what Spectrum is, um, you know, and you've worked everywhere in, you know, in, in Queens and Brooklyn and some of the most challenging situations to turn things around, um, you know, maybe walk us through a little bit about what Spectrum was when you first moved up here into the progress and um, the decisions you had to make along the way, because I think it's wonderful leadership stories in there uh, about, you know, coming in here and having to make very, very tough cuts. And I think in, you talk about in the book where the, the old executive director who was very supportive of you said that they were going to make some financial arrangements and cuts. So when you come on board, it was going to be, it was going to, it was going to be like smooth sailing. You're just going to have to build it up. And I think your wife said, that's probably not going to happen. And then you, the first couple of days in the job, instead of being able to move it forward, you had to just now start cutting expenses. And I think everybody, you know, in business at times can be faced with these very tough decisions, uh, you know, in, in business that we have to make. So walk us through that. So the board, you know, they interviewed me and then they, the board treasurer took me out to dinner before I took the job. And he said, you know, we just lost a lot of money last fiscal year, but don't worry all. By the time you get here, all these cuts will be made, will be smooth sailing. So my wife did say to me, don't believe them. <laughs> you have to do it. And I did have to do it. And I felt terrible about it. But I mean, we literally, Adam, were like, can we make payroll this week? We, and, and the kind of accounting they use in the nonprofit world is called fund balance. We had a negative fund balance. And we were living off of uh, second mortgages, lines of credit. You know, I always tell people, I went to People's Bank. It was called Chittenden Bank then. Mm -hmm. And said, I know we owe you this first line of credit, but I got to pay people for Thanksgiving. Can you give me another 100000 I thought for sure the guy would throw me out of the room, but he gave me another line of credit. And to this day, I say to my finance director, we're always going to bank with People's Bank because they had our back when we were desperate. But he gave so, you, uh, sorry to interject, he gave yes. you the line of credit 
because yes. of what he saw, the decisions that you were making, correct? That that's gave true. him more confidence that you were going to be able to turn this around. So I think that's a really key part of it. It's not like they just said, hey, here's 100000 So walk us through that because that's an integral part of the story. So I did have to make cuts. It was very painful. We had to close programs down that were helping kids. But it was literally, can we keep the place afloat, you know? Yeah. And staff were angry. Morale. One woman said to me, morale is just going to plummet if you lay off one more person. I said, you know, morale is really going to plummet when you go to cash your check. And the teller says, sorry, Spectrum doesn't have any money to pay you. So it was very difficult. But so I was sending this banker monthly, you know, on an accrual basis. Mm -hmm. You could see we were moving out of the red into the yeah. black, you know. But on a cash basis, by the time we hit Thanksgiving, we were just out, you know. So he could see that and he could see the other. Well, he was seeing the fiscal changes we were making at the same time I was making program changes. You know, mm -hmm. I always tell the story in my line of work. You have to be, you know, at least know the police chief be in good terms. And I went in to see the police chief and I said, hi, I'm the new director of Spectrum. And she looked up from her desk and said, Spectrum, boy, you have a long way to go to get the reputation of your organization back. I'm like, nice to meet you. And I said to my predecessor, I know all these businesses on Church Street hate us. Who hates us the most? He said, oh, this guy, Eves Bradley, he owns the body shop. He's caused us to lose a grand. He's always trashing us, you know. So I said, well, like the Godfather said, keep my enemies, keep my friend. No, keep my friends close and my enemies closer. Mm -hmm. So I, I reached out to Eves Bradley and met with him. I met with all the downtown police. I did ride alongs at 2 a.m. with the police. And slowly, slowly, we changed the culture. And when I met with the downtown police, they were like, listen, you know, a kid commits a crime on Church Street. We're in hot pursuit. He ducks into Spectrum and your staff are like, sorry, officer, you know, confidentiality. So I said to our staff, we'll work with tough kids. We'll even get them a pro bono lawyer if we have to. But we can't shield them from the consequences of their behavior. So there are staff who didn't agree with that and they don't work at Spectrum anymore. <laughs> But we did change the culture to where we were going to be a responsible citizen. We were going to be a responsible part of Church Street and, and of Burlington as a whole. And that paid off, you know? People began to see, I remember he's passed away now, Marcellus Parsons was the anchor at WCAX. Yeah. And I remember I met him, I was there about a year, and he said, we've been listening to some of the things you're saying, and we can see how things are changing there in the right direction. So it was no one fell swoop, but it was like slowly, slowly, you know, really as in any business, you rebuild your reputation. And some of it wasn't fair, Adam. Every kid who did something wrong on Church Street, oh, it's a spectrum yeah. fault. Yeah. So I also had to defend the organization and say, you, hey, wait a minute, you can't tag us with every single thing that goes wrong in the city of Burlington. Yeah. So we, we have a very good reputation. The businesses, you know, we raised $49,000 in donations that first year. This year, we're going to raise over $3 million. So there's a lot of reasons that has happened. But part of it is the business community trusts what we do. Do you think, oh, that's awesome. Do you think that um, the general public, and you've had such an amazing, you know, tenure dealing with kids that are going through very challenging times. I think it's very common for people to see 
individuals getting into trouble and going kind of like, Hey, what's wrong with that kid? Instead of stopping and asking the question, like what happened to them? What has been your experience in terms of helping change the perception? Because I know when you and I were together, I asked more of that question. You said, Hey, it's just, it's broken families. A lot of times where they, they're treated disrespectful. They don't have a, a set of principles to kind of guide their life. And I know Oprah, I don't know if you've seen this, but it came out with a new book called what happened to you. And the whole premise is when you see kids acting up instead of saying, Hey, what's wrong with that kid go, Hey, I wonder what caused them to act this way because people typically aren't born to act that way. Right. There's a reason why they are. So what is your experience in there? I've also kind of used this as a platform to kind of educate all of us, including me about when they see kids acting up, whether that's in second grade or third grade or in high school or out of it, how do we have more compassion for them? Yeah, this has been a huge change in our whole field, really in the last five, I would say five years. Oprah has something to do with it. And you're right. It's, we talk a lot now work about trauma-informed care. And that's, yeah. that's what Oprah wrote. Instead of saying, why did you act that way? It's like, what did happen to you? you know? And for most of these kids, you know, they have a very thick protective shield. But eventually, if you develop a close enough relationship with them, they'll tell you what happened to them. And it's pretty brutal. You know, our kids are used to um, domestic violence in the home. They're used to alcoholism in the home. They're used to drug addict. They're used to being abandoned. They're used to being shuttled. It's not unusual at all to meet an 18-year-old who's lived in 12 different foster homes by the time they're 18. You know, 12 different schools. So just think of that. You know, I think of, you know, you have kids. I have two sons. Gosh, you know, they've had stability. They've had structure. They, you know, my wife and I haven't done it all right, but we've done it mostly right because he's turned out well. So that's what they're, I, so many kids I've talked to, they'll say, yeah, I have a father, but he hasn't really been a father to me. You know, they'll say that to me. And the one young man, oh, I made the mistake. You know, at some point they age out, they hit 23. At some point you have to leave spectrum. And I saw a young man and he'd been with us a while. And I said, so what are you going to, you must have some family, you know, that you can go live with. And he said, I don't really have a family. I, I have you people at Spectrum. You've kind of been my family, you know, which is really tragic and sad to think of, but we do function as that. So you're right. I think, you know, that's why we sent all of our mental health counselors to be trained in, in, a, in a form of trauma treatment. It's called EMDR. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's, it's, it's the use of eye movement and it has to do with neuroscience. We send everybody to Pennsylvania to be trained in that because we've, you've really got to figure out a way to get to that, to help young people and then start to undo some of the negative patterns and the negative habits that they've, they've developed. How would, what, what tip or suggestion or reading would you provide to people listening of saying, Hey, I want to change my, you know, maybe um, unconscious bias towards this. Is there a, I mean, we, they can't go to Pennsylvania and get trained. Is there a tip or a, a, um, a literature that they can go to, to kind of read more about this to, for them to be able to bring more of that compassion uh, into our younger youth to help them along the way versus looking at them as a, as a problem. So there's an author, is a book we've all read at Spectrum called Motivational Interviewing. And I forget who wrote it. It's on my bookshelf, but that and Motivational Interviewing is it. And that talks a lot about how even with addiction counseling, we've gotten away from shaming and trying to make people scared, but it's really trying to, through a skillful approach, how can you get at the motivation why somebody is abusing and abusing drugs? So that's one that we all 
read, you know, especially my, my workers. So I think that would be, and the other tip would be not to be afraid of getting professional help or just hoping it goes away. You know, when I talk to my mental health counselors and addiction counselors, I say, what message do you have for parents and they say, don't wait till it gets to the crisis point. Don't wait till it gets to your kid's been arrested or has wrecked a car, you know, or, you know, is like overdosed. Like, please pay attention to those early signals. Don't stick your head in the sand. Now, here's the problem, Adam. Like, especially after the pandemic, the emotional health needs of young people has gone sky high. In fact, we have 45 kids on our waiting list right now, wow. which is terrible. Yeah. So I had a meeting yesterday. I'm like, a bunch of the people are graduating from graduate schools now with counseling degrees. Let's try and hire two, three or four more of those. Then I got to figure out where to put them because we're already bursting at the seams and, I, and I'll, I'll figure that out. I'll figure that part. That's the easier part. The harder part is getting people who are really trained and who are experts in this. Uh, we have a great crew, great crew of counselors. And you know, I have friends call me, my son is addicted to drugs. My son is severely depressed. And I'm like, let get, uh, here, here's the referral number for Spectrum. Yeah. So it's not just homeless kids too, Adam. Like you talked about, what does Spectrum do? We see kids from all demographics, upper middle class, upper middle, some of the wealthiest families in Vermont, you know, have walked through the door at Spectrum. Because especially addiction, depression, it doesn't know economic boundaries, right? You know, and sometimes it is biochemical. And you can have a family, there were four kids and three turned out fine. And then the fourth is going at a really scary path. So they raise that child the same way. Maybe it has something to do with their biochemistry, you know? And we're lucky. We can collaborate with Community Health Center Burlington. They have psychiatrists on staff. We can collaborate with them for medication management. We had Melissa Bernstein on um, at one point, and we also talked to her off air for a little while. And one thing she said to me, somebody asked her and said, hey, how do you identify at age four or five? She was darkly and, and very deeply depressed. And she said, you know, go look for people's writings. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of times people that are very, very depressed, they will go to some sort of form of writing because that's the only way they can they can get it out there. It's not always the answer, but she said for her, if, if her parents had just looked at her writing, that would have been the first clue that you that you kind of shared with you of just starting to actually talk about it and be able to bring that to, to the light. That's good. Writing is good. You know what else? And when I went through my depression, you want to help me painting. For some reason, there was mm -hmm. an adult watercolor class. Yeah. And I would go into that class so racked with anxiety, I couldn't even hold, I didn't, how am I gonna paint? I can't even hold the brush straight. By the end of that hour, I was calm, I was calm as, you know, as could be. That's and awesome. I remember thinking like, there's something to this. There's something, you know, because depression kind of draws you into yourself. It sucks you into yourself, you know, like a vortex. And by getting out of yourself, and for her it was writing is great. For me, the painting helped a lot. And then, and I know you're, you're an expert, Exercise was key, it was yeah. key. There's a load of information about how exercise can be just as effective as any uh, SSRI in terms of depression. And it's fine, I just used to ride that bicycle for hours and hours and I put in the book, finally the thing was rickety and it was rusty <laughs> and 20 years later my friend's like, get rid of that thing. And I'm like, no, that thing saved my life. <laughs> and I find, there's a place for right next to Spectrum for men coming out of prison. So one of the ex-prisoners saw the bike one day and said, man, that's a nice bike. I was thinking of cutting the lock off and taking it. <laughs> I said, you don't have to do that. Take the bike. That bike helped me so much. Maybe it'll help you too. That's so awesome. anyway, I found a good home for it. But exercise is also key. 
Yeah. How do you, um, obviously dealing with, you know, kids and tragedies and listening to their stories has got to um, zap you uh, or morally, or maybe it doesn't. Um, how do you handle the morale and the kind of the you know, allowing your feelings to be in there, but at the same time, making the decisions that need to be made from a business standpoint, also supporting these kids just in a day in and day out basis, your entire life. And this isn't like an eight to five job, right? No. Listening to your book and your stories. I mean, you are, and that's the kind of this, there's two parts to this question, you know, and it also goes into like, you have a, you work and you have a job and you have the mechanics of working. Right. But this is, this is a strong meaning for you. And this isn't like, Hey, a certain hourly, you know, uh, eight to five or even eight to nine. This is like, you don't, do you even consider this work or is this just what you're here to do? And we labeled it work. Walk us through that. That's a good question. You know, there's that saying, right. Find what you love to do. You won't work a day in your life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it feels that way to me. It really does. Yeah. That being said, you know, for five years, I ran a residential treatment center and I was required to live on the grounds. And I, about a fifth year, Adam, I was shot because, you know, even though I had good staff, and we had made a lot of good changes. 72 kids at any time of the day or night, one of them could have a psychotic break or threaten suicide or, you know, and so you go to bed like always like, mm, I hope I don't get called at 2 a.m. And sometimes I would get called. So about a fifth year of that, I was just, and I kept trying to work harder and harder and harder. And I really burned myself out. So I learned not to do that, you know? And at Spectrum, thankfully, we have so many great staff. They're so dedicated. And we really, I mean, they, we had a meeting the other day and they're like, Spectrum is great with self-care. Like we give people a lot of time off uh, we just enacted a policy yesterday. We're not even going to count sick days anymore. We're going to trust if you're sick. And then you get, well, is it a mental health day or is it a, it's like, no, it's a health day. Mm-hmm. If you're like exhausted from work, take that day. Okay. And it'll count as a health day. So I really am a believer in that. You just, this is a marathon we're in. It's not a sprint and we need to take care personally you know, I know you're a, a, a big devotee of meditation. So am I. It's the first thing I do. I have a cup of coffee and then I meditate for the first 20 minutes every day. Awesome. I do yoga every morning. I did it this morning. I do a number of other spiritual practices. I fast once a week. I try and go and retreat at a monastery once a year if I can. And I think those things, and I have a wonderful supportive wife yeah. and two wonderful, you know, I have a great family life and I exercise group of guys I go biking with on a regular basis. So all of those things, you know, there's no one thing and I've kind of added different practices mm-hmm. and, and things, routines over the years. But I think that has a lot to do with why, you know, June 20th will be my 40th anniversary and, uh, and I've made it. I think that's awesome. I think, you know, hearing that is like you have a very prescriptive practice that keeps you grounded to be able to handle anything that shows up in life because, you know, it's, it's, there's one thing we don't, one thing we do know is that we don't know what's going to happen every day, right? But being right. in a situation, whether it's in business or nonprofit or just, you know, being at home and I just watch what my wife does alone. She's not getting a paycheck, but man, the stuff oh. that she does is harder than I do every single day. And I just, I just want to give her credit for that because she taking care of our kids is so difficult um, just from, from just dealing with all the sorts of things. So um, just whatever profession, whatever you're doing, each day in activity, you have to really set yourself up to be able to withstand and handle the challenges that show up every day. It's true. No matter what field you're in and yeah. raising children, I know you have three children. It's, yeah. it's a lot. When they're little, 
They're yeah. all little. It is really, really difficult, you know? So it gets easier. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, somebody said to me in Brooklyn once, when they're small, you got small problems. When they're big, you got big problems. Exactly. I think there's less problems on a daily basis, but when they happen, they tend to be They're bigger, bigger. yeah. <laughs> you know, for people listening, and one of the leadership lessons that I got from you is to just start taking action on something. And I think one of the one of the powerful stories is that is about how you were able to get in contact with the Buffets um, from that. So if you want to share that little story about just where, did, how did that originate from? And obviously not knowing where exactly that was going to take you, but you just, you, you took a different level of action to try to elicit a different response. And I think it's just a wonderful leadership lesson. Yeah. So I wrote this article. I mean, and you're right. I do. One of the seven habits of highly effective people, I believe is bias for action. I remember reading that one of those books in the eighties and, you know, I grew up with a dad, he was a real estate developer and he would talk and he went to college at night on the GI bill and he used to people he admired. He was like, that man's a doer. That woman's a doer. So I was, so that's what I want to be. And I think I do. That's my reputation. I'm a doer. I'm not going to sit there and debate things and, you know, spend years trying to decide, but yeah, the more of it. So I, I wrote an article that made it into Forbes magazine uh, about uh, why do people give uh, $50 million to a university that already has an endowment of a billion while a place like Spectrum, you know, which works with the poorest of the poor, you know, gets nothing or the crumbs. So I, uh, I just sent it to Forbes.com and they ran it in their next issue. And that's some of my wife's grandfather. He was like 98 at the time. So you should send that article to Warren Buffett. I was like, granddad, Warren Buffett's probably got six layers of secretaries to protect them from people like me. But I did it anyway. And Warren Buffett wrote back to me. I couldn't believe it. He wrote me this little note, didn't send a check. And three years later, same grandfather says, you're married to one of my granddaughters. My other granddaughter is dating Warren Buffett's sister's grandson. And she's giving away a lot of her brother's money. So I called my wife's cousin. I said, is this true? She said, it is. I broke up with the guy, but I'm still friends with Doris Buffett, his grandmother. Don't email, don't type, take a pen and your agency's letter in and write her a letter and tell her what you need. So I wrote to Doris Buffett and I attached her brother's little note. Wrote, P.S., your brother and I are pen pals. Please see attached. So I heard from her assistant and... Uh, we were very close to getting a big gift and then the stock market crashed. And so they couldn't, you know, they couldn't. So at the last, as I was talking to this woman on the phone, last thing I said is I, I get it. I understand. I said, can I at least keep you informed? She said, sure. So over the next two years, Adam, any little article, any little thing I was on, you know, news, I would send to her. No ask, didn't ask for a thing. And one day in 2011, I looked at that stock market. I said, you know what? I'll bet you they got their money back. So I called her up and said, can I send you a proposal? She said, we would love to get a proposal from you. We've been following you all these years. So they gave us a $200,000 gift, matching gift, to get to start another home for homeless teenagers. And we built that home. I'm going there this afternoon. It's almost, it's nine years old now. It looks beautiful. Most people walk in and say, wow, my kid's college dorm doesn't look this nice. And we've seen so many young people go through there who have good lives. and but So anyway, yeah, I took action. I followed my, he, I, when we had the grand opening, Doris Buffett couldn't make it up. My grandfather was 100, my wife's grand, he was 103 by that time. And he eventually passed away. But um, it was, you're right, it's a good example. Like, why not, right? The worst that people can do is ignore you, right? Or say no. And then you can ask again. 
Yeah. Well, you wrote the letter, but then you just, you stayed consistent with it. It wasn't just like you wrote it and like, Hey, she said, no, Hey, the stock market, you know, in 2006 stopped. So they, they weren't really funding any money, but you stayed consistent and you just took the extra little things every single you know week or month to send the letters and keep doing that. And I think that persistence also shows people that are in leadership that are writing checks out saying, Hey, my money's going to go to a good place. And I think that's when we, when, when you're, when you're coming into money, people want money from you a lot. And a lot of people just ask once or twice and they kind of go away. Right. And I think people that want to donate, they want to donate to the, the cause, but they also want to donate to the people that are implementing the changes to the cause to actually help um, the facilities. So I think, you know, as, as just from biz- being in business, watching people perform at that level. And it's the same thing with the Bill and Melinda Gates, right? Like their foundation, Warren Buffett donated a, a huge percentage of his holdings to that because he basically said, they're doing it better than I am, right? right. And I'm investing really into the Gates Foundation, but I'm investing into the people that they've hired in the systems they put in place to distribute the money. And I think that's very powerful um, uh, coming from a place of philanthropy of, of wanting to give because you're investing into the cause, but you're investing into the people to ensure that, that your money is, is being used the best that it can. Yes. And I think we thank well, too. I hear that from donors. Yeah, yeah. I was playing pickleball last summer and some man says, Mark Redman, you got I give money and I get a phone call. I get an email. I get a letter You're like you think. And I was like, right, that's that's what we do. We th- and people remember that, Adam. And then, you know, my father law said to me once he's very wealthy. He's very generous. So I don't like these nonprofits. I give money to them. And the only time I hear from them again is when they want more money. And I thought that's not going to be me. You know, yeah. you'll hear from us. Hey, Here's this thing. Here's how we're using your money. Here's the impact that your your donation made, you know? And then you can say to them a year or two later, gee, you gave us X dollars last time. It was great. We're so grateful. If you give us Y, we think this is what we can do with that money. And I'll tell you, Adam, nine times out of 10, they are going to give you Y. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I think you're a great example of somebody who gets extremely focused and results oriented when you are going after a particular goal, whether it's a fundraising, whether that's a, you know, the, the sleep out or, you know, whatever job you've taken on, you've gotten very focused on turning things around, but you've also let go of any personal gain that comes from it. Meaning like material gain, you're not focused on that And business meets spirituality is about using business as an opportunity to grow personally and to let go of needing something personally and coming from contribution. And so I'd love for you just to kind of share your thoughts on that because a lot of people listening to this want to do more. It's like, I think a lot of people show up in their parking lot and before they walk in, if they have employees or agents and they're sitting there going, what can I get from people today? Instead of kind of pausing and saying, Hey, before I walk in here, this is a ritual that I do every morning. 99% of the time I I stop in my car and I say, Hey, I'm here to contribute. I'm here to give. Right. I mean, I'm not here to get anything. And I think you're just, because then that makes you a very fierce competitor. I don't mean that right. in, a, in a positive or negative way. It just, it makes you very fierce to be able to go out there, ask for the money, make the donations, write the articles, because you're right. not doing it for this selfish uh, gain just for you. You're doing it mainly to be selfish in a way to help the organization, if that right. makes sense. I'd love for you to speak on that. Yeah. And to me, you know, I know this sounds trite. It's all about the kids. Well, it is all about the kids. That's why Spectrum exists, right? So for me, like I'm very confident that what we do really has an impact. It's I know it's changing lives. I literally get emails and letters. I see people, you know, I saw a kid on the street in Church Street two weeks ago. Last time I saw him, he was living in a warming shelter and uh, and now he's doing okay. And I'm like, you know what? Spectrum had something to do with that, you know? So to me, that's what it's about. And, 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 you know, how can you show up? And I think staff are going to 
especially you're saying, I'm going to pick up on that. If you're just there for an ego trip or it's, mm-hmm. it's your stepping stone to the next bigger job with the biggest salary, they're going to, mm-hmm. they're going to figure that out. You can't yeah. hide that, you know? But for me, from the start, you know, I said, I have no idea how long I'm going to stay here, but I believe, believe that I was called to this place for this specific reason. And um, I think that gets communicated. And I think the people who support us pick up on that too, you know, and our board of directors. Have you ever read the Bhagavad Gita before? I have not read that book, but I always remember Wayne Dyer said that was the, the, the movie and the legend of Bagger Vance was actually based on the Bagger Vita. But I should read it out. I'm going to put that on my list. You should. And, and one of the reasons I love that book so much is because it actually, um, it teaches people a, a principle, if you will, of being extremely laser focused in business but mm-hmm. then letting go of any personal need from your contribution from there. Example is like, you know, an, a- an apple tree gets very purposeful in producing apples, but it doesn't then just take the apples for itself. It produces right. them on the ground, right? And right. Then, it, then, it, then it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't go like, hey, deer, you're the only ones that can have this. The squirrels, you can't have any. It just, then it just produces the apples, but it gets focused on creating an oak tree or creating apple tree and it drops the apples for everyone to, to contribute. Right. It doesn't mean you get taken advantage of. It's not right. passivity. It's not right. inaction. So right. I think people get caught up and they go, Hey, I want to bring more consciousness into, into my workplace. That has nothing to do with passivity. It's not like there's a lion there. I'm going to lay on the ground. It right. just means that you let go of you needing something personal from your decisions. And then you go out there and you actually end up getting what you end up wanting because you don't want it in the first place or it's not a need. And I have this little thing that we always use. This just says need nothing and enjoy everything. And again, it's, it's need nothing and forget about, you know, obviously once you're past food and water and shelter, right? But there's very few things that we need, but then we get to enjoy everything. I have this quote that's on my, on my desk. It says, the goal of life is the state of enlightenment in which we live in the relative, but never forget the absolute at the basis of our existence. Mm. This is living 200% of life, experiencing the wealth and enjoyment, which the relative can offer together with the eternal bliss of the absolute. So it's really that life is that 200%, right? 100% inner world, 100% playing in this form world. We are here. There's beautiful gifts. Enjoy them. Nobody's saying don't enjoy them or marriage or material things. Right. But if you're doing it as a way to strengthen who you are, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And I think people do that in work too much. Um, They get so caught up in needing something from work instead of actually contributing to it, which then if you need something, it paralyzes you um, from taking the right action. Well, I often think, you know, I'm, I'm a Catholic, baptized, I go to church, and there's, uh, I'm not like into Bible quotes big, but there is one from St. Paul's letter, I forget to who, but he said, whatever you are doing, put your whole heart into it, as if you were doing it for God, and not for people, you know, and I've thought of that, that's true, no matter what you're doing, you know, if you're sweeping the street, if you're emptying the dishwasher, which is also a very Buddhist Zen concept also, like right? yeah. whatever you're doing, you focus, put your whole heart into it. And I've thought of that yeah, a lot. I love that. So where can everybody find you, Mark? So I am at, uh, you know, I have email, uh, M.A. Redman and MSN.com. My book is now out. I did a website, Mark with a K, MarkRedmanBooks.com. So you go on that and uh, the book is called Called a Memoir. And uh, very excited about that. It's it's sold out at the Phoenix Bookstore. <laughs> they ordered some more, so that's a good sign. Yes, it is. I ordered the audio book also and the ebook. So um, so yeah, that's the best way. You can reach me, markredmanbooks.com. And the woman who did my site said, 
don't make a Mark Redman book. Make a Mark Redman books because you, you're gonna. This is just you're gonna write more. I was like, yeah. I like that. I like that thinking. I like, I like that. Thinking. Yeah. Well, well, we'll definitely include that in all the show notes as well too. Anything that you want to um, leave with our audience today? Um, boy, uh, I'm just grateful to be on the show. I've really valued getting to know you more and more over the last couple of years. I think people ask me. One of our board members said to me, are you an optimist? You must be an optimist or you wouldn't do this kind of work. And I've often thought of that. And I said, I am an optimist. I'm also a realist. I know we face serious problems in our country and in our world right now. This is not about sticking your head in the sand and hoping everything works out well. But I think my role and why I wrote the book and why I tell stories on the moth is to really give people hope. You know, I often say I want to give people hope that people can overcome their addictions. They can overcome their trauma. They can overcome their wounds. And it's, it just doesn't have my accident. It takes resilience, grit, courage, strength. And you know what else takes, Adam? Somebody else stepping outside of their comfort zone, out of their bubble, in a spirit of compassion and care to help those people. And when you have those two forces, individuals who have the grit, who have the resilience, meeting others who are in a position to help in some way, that's when really amazing, miraculous things happen. That's awesome. Do you think people need to accept exactly where they are before they can actually start rebuilding their life? I think there's a sense of that. You know, we do a lot of work with people who are suffering from addiction. The first step to healing from addiction is accepting you're an addict, <laughs> you yeah. know? And yeah. I think we need, that doesn't mean, you're, oh, I can't do anything about it. No, I have to accept where exactly. I'm at, you know? Yeah. But now, how do I move forward? How do I change? What can I change so that, you know, I can live a different kind of life? And I think we need, to, we need to accept in the United States the things that, you know, we need to change, be it whatever, it's global warming or racial. We need to accept those things that we've got these difficulties. Now, how do we work together as a people? We do that individually. We do that in organizations. I'm sure you do it in your company. We do it at Spectrum. And I believe we need to do it as a country and, a, and as a planet. One final question for you. What would your advice be to leaders who have to take positions on racial injustice and all the, you know, global warming and, and all the, you know, kind of the, the things that are really being brought to light, right? Whether it's voting, racial injustice, global warming, you know, how you run your organization as like, you know, you just all of a sudden started giving, you know, no health days. We, our organization has right. no, you know, no unlimited paid vacation. So people can come right. and go. We treat them as adults. What would your advice be to leaders who are facing these challenges that are showing up in our world right now? Yeah, um, they affect all of us, right? Global warming, even if you think, well, that's not really my field, that doesn't really affect my business, it affects you. It's all interconnected, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah. So then you have to say, which one, and we're struggling with this inspector, which ones can we really make an impact on? Mm -hmm. You know, we started an advocacy committee and one of our board presidents is president of seventh generation, which makes soap and diapers and stuff, but they're also very activists. Mm -hmm. And he said, you have to be, you have to be strategic. You can't affect every single issue, but you can join with others. Don't try and be the lone hero. What are the other organizations like yours and how can you join with them to see which, which one of these can you make an impact on? So that would be my advice. Awesome. Mark, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Adam. A pleasure here. I always love seeing you, being with you. Thank you so much. Hey, before you go today, I want to give a shout out to everyone who has left us a review. It really makes a huge impact and helps us spread the word about our podcast. This review is from ES Dunn. Love to listen to Adam and Hallie's podcast. I'm always inspired and challenged to change and be a better person. Love that. 
I love the positivity and that they share their successes how that, and our failures with their listeners. Thank you so much for sending that and for leaving a review. We really look forward to reading these every time they come in. So thanks again.